Thanks very much for coming here for our um, last Middle East Center seminar of the term. I'm Courtney Freer, I'm research officer at the Kuwait program, and we have with us today Dr. David Roberts from King's College. He'll be speaking about the four areas of cultural foreign policy. Um, David joined the Defense Studies Department of King's College in October 2013, and prior to moving to King's was the director of the Qatar Office of the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies at University of Qatar. Um, he obtained his PhD from Durham University, his MA in Diplomacy from Nottingham University, and MA in International Relations from St. Andrews. Um, his primary research focuses are cultural foreign policy. He has a book coming out later this year on that topic uh, called Qatar, Securing Global Ambitions of the City-State. So you should definitely look out for that. Um, so without going on too much longer, I'll go ahead and let David speak for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then we'll go ahead and open it up to question and answer. So. Um, well, thank you all very much for coming along. Um, I hope you can all hear me just about. So, um, the last time I was here was in 2010, uh, when I was very kindly invited to speak about Qatari foreign policy. So, a couple of years later, a couple of things have changed, so I'm back to give you a quick update, um, is the way I say So, thank you for everyone at the centre, Courtney to Ian and so on. I always like these opportunities. So, I'm looking at Qatari foreign policy. I'm looking at the concept of foreign policy in quite a general kind of a way. I don't have a rigid definition in my mind. More often than not, I'm looking at the, the question that animates so much of this is how different actors in Qatar that I'll talk about secured security. That's the nub of what I think the foreign policy is about. That's what I'm going to be on about, how they've done it. And as for four years, well, I think it's the subject matter kind of lends itself to being split up into different eras. I don't think I'm being particularly revolutionary at all in splitting it up in the following kind of ways. I think it's kind of natural, as I'll mention. So, first things first, I go back a, a little while. Um, I'm trying to present a, a sort of a gamut, I suppose, of foreign policies to emerge from the Qatari Peninsula in recent times. So I go back to the 1770s, curiously enough. Um, by definition, I've only got 35 minutes or so, I'm trying to cover a lot. I'm entirely happy to attempt to answer your questions on any particular issue that I skirt over too quickly. I'll do my best towards the end. Anyway, so the emergence piece, I mean, what I'm on about here, so the, the milieu that I'm talking about, the reason I start in the 1770s is this is when Arab writers say the modern history of Qatar begins to a degree. So this is when, in particular, a tribal confederation of the Uttab, a group of families as much as anything, they move from Kuwait down to the Qatari Peninsula. They're aiming, they want to go to this area, that area, the Qatari area, so that they can go to Bahrain for the pearling beds in Bahrain. But they can't, and so they move just to Zubara, which is just across from Bahrain, on the west coast of Qatar. And what I'm talking about now uh, is the idea of local alliances. And I'm going to just talk a few things, give, pick out a few little quick vignettes about how these sorts of groupings secured their security. And maybe we can see some threads that go through to today, to a large degree. So this is the, the, the enormous time period I'm going to speak about very quickly. Anyway. In the 1790s, as I said, in the 1770s, 1776 is the rough age, the rough time, I should say, 
as to when this tribal group of, of Utub, I should say the Al-Khalifa, rulers in Bahrain today, that's when they arrived in the Qatari corner of the Gulf, uh, is in this movement. And it's how do they secure security? In this example, in the 1790s, they had concerns emanating from the centre of the Arabian Peninsula. So Wahhabi forces that came out of modern-day Saudi Arabia, the centre, challenged the rule of these local Atab tribes, uh, and they tried to, as I say, ally with other tribes in the area at the time, and it didn't work. On this occasion, it didn't work. <laughs> Move on a couple of years, and if allying with tribes on the Qatari Peninsula itself doesn't work, maybe they can try some slightly extra uh, different version sort of, um, of, of alliances with Persian forces that were sort of in Bahrain at this time. Again, this is against Muscat. This is against the Sultan of Muscat. This is another actor who is coming to the Qatari little corner of the Arabian Peninsula in order to, for the, for the pearling rights as much as anything. So there's this kind of a dynamic. Skipping on, we have a different kind of, of uh, relationship is struck up. Instead of allying with Persian forces, it's again with the Wahhabi forces. The forces that they were against just a few years previously. But that's the way, the dynamic, the, the speed with which these alliances chop and change. On this occasion, the Utub and the Wahhabis, they're now partners, win, as it were. They defeat the Sultan of Muscat on this occasion, and the Utub in Qatar are subjected to what's described in the literature as a tribal, and a Wahhabi tribal commonwealth. So this is what it is. They sign up to that agreement with the understanding if they win, they'll be in a, a Wahhabi commonwealth. Fair enough. But they don't really want this. Within a few years, for, again, leadership in the Utub try to strike a bargain with the British resident against the Wahhabi forces. This doesn't work. So what they do, a few years later, they go back to the old enemy, again, as it were, the Sultan of Muscat against the Wahhabis. If this is the fundamental confusing dynamic that I'm trying to portray, it's about this exact quick sort of intra-regional skirmishes, but it's about the answer to them. It's about changing alliances very quickly, as quick as you need. Fundamentally, what the, the, the key powers in the, in the peninsula were about at the time was you're looking for someone who is strong enough to give you a certain security, but who will allow you to be your own person, to be your own tribe, to give you a certain freedom under their control. This is the, the, the fundamental issue which I think we'll come back to time and again. And foreign policy in this kind of era, such as it is, is to do with this dynamic, I argue at least. Obviously enough, enter empire. We then have the role of empires in the region. First of all, we have the British signing an agreement with Muhammad al-Thani early on. This is a bit of a, a red herring in a way, because this, and we'll come back to this point if you want, but the late, sort of late 19th century is more a question of the Ottoman role in Qatar. Far more a question. The Ottomans have boots on the ground in Qatar for 50-some years from this kind of a date. Sheikh Jassim here, um, Mohammed's son, he is selected by the Ottomans and by the port, as it's referred to, and he gets four flags to put at the furthest reaches of his, of his, of his control on the Qatari Peninsula, and he pays a tribute to the Ottomans in Constantinople. 
this alliance works in this case because only a few years later you know we have still have problems emerging from the center of the Arabian Peninsula but the Ottomans as well as providing you know uh, theoretical protection as it were they provide literal protection There's, there is a, a fort is built a bit later on than this but there are guns given to the Qataris and so on but this doesn't last long either this is this is the point again the dynamic is you want a certain amount of protection but you want as much freedom as you can get within the bounds of the protection to pursue what your own ideas and there were lots of difficulties emerging with Sheikh Jassim and the Ottomans at this stage the Ottomans in particular wanted a customs house to be built in Qatar to take some of Sheikh Jassim's loot as, as far as he saw it and there was the Battle of Wajba. This is a very important battle in terms of Qatari history. I'm not going to talk about it too much now, but this was an indigenous Qatari victory. A surprising indigenous Qatari victory, which today has been rehabilitated as a very important, as a, as a seminal moment in the founding of, modern, of the modern Qatari state. Of course, if we're talking about empires, we then need to talk about Britain. We then need to talk about Britain and the Trukiel states. So the Battle of Wajpa was the end of the de facto power, as it were, of the Ottomans in, in, in Doha. The remnants of the power remained, but in reality, it changed in the de jure as well, joined it, as it were, in 1916. And we have the British-Qatari relationship from this date. Qatar signed up to a lot of, not all, of the statutes of the Trucial States Agreements, Trucial States being the UAE, modern day, of course, a series of agreements with Britain um, and one of the things that this meant was the foreign policy would be by law as it were undertaken by London on behalf of Doha and so again this is the, the way foreign policy was sort of actively arranged in, in law as much as anything else the reality was a bit different obviously enough as the 20th century progressed I mean this only disintegrated of course in 1971 So what we have here, I mean, this is just, sorry, this is cut off, it's just extra regional sol um, solutions, as it were, relationships. So we have slightly more enduring alliances, but there's still plenty of discussion and debating. We have slightly more enduring alliances than chopping and changing every couple of years between the Sultan of Muscat or whomever it may be, but we have still a lot of debate. The local Qatari powers, the Alfani powers that we're talking about now, they are increasingly quite strict almost with the British or with the Ottomans before them in getting a good bargain. This is what happened. And this, the basic dynamic, there's still a search for a suzerain, an overarching kind of a power. That's still what it's about, I would probably argue. And generally, the foreign policy is probably rather limited overall. Post-empire from 1971, in 1971 Britain left the Gulf, uh, unilaterally, um, neither Qatar nor the UAE particularly wanted Britain to leave the Gulf at this stage, there wasn't an enormous sort of, what's the word, glorious revolution, there wasn't anything like that, there was plenty of agitation, uh, certainly in the 60s, but there wasn't a great movement to get the Brits out, um, and so in 1971, um, around the, this, this date, you had the formation of the UAE, of course, but Qatar initially sort of assumed that they will join, along with Bahrain. There will be a nine-member United Arab Emirates. 
but that just doesn't quite come to pass. It seems that the difficulties, the historic difficulties between Qatar and Bahrain proved to be too much. And Bahrain and um, UAE, uh, no, Bahrain and Qatar strike out on their own. So what do we have? So probably, this is a contentious bit in a way, in that we probably have Saudi Arabia. I, I, I argue at least that it's explicitly, implicitly assumed, or implicitly, explicitly, whichever way you want it, assume that Saudi Arabia take on that kind of suzerain role, to a degree replacing Britain. Now, I say this is contentious because this is not really written down in, in, in the, the textbooks that we read at the moment about Qatar, and there's a few coming out. I get this from quite a few interviews in Doha, and then trying to triangulate what happens. So, excuse me. In the same way that, you know, um, you can't really see a, uh, a black hole, I think, you know, literally it can't be examined, but you can examine the uh, ramifications of it, of what it does to the surrounding space, or whatever the phrase may be. I think we can probably triangulate this sort of relationship. So as well as some very interesting discussions in 1965 between Khalifa bin Hamid. Now, Khalifa bin Hamid would take over in 1972, but he was a very influential crown prince even beforehand. There's some very interesting discussions between him and Zaki Yamani, who was the oil minister in, in, in Saudi Arabia at the time, and is it Yusuf Kamal as well, maybe? Am I getting that name right? Anyway, about, about relationships between Qatar and Saudi, and about the border, and what sort of relationship it might be. And you just see a, an awful lot of deference shown by Qatar by Khalifa bin Hamid's administration when he comes to power in 72. Foreign policy, again, I think is, is, is highly limited. And in some ways, this is actually a bit of an outlier, I think. So previously, what I've been talking about is you've, had a, you've wanted to find a certain hegemon, a certain power who could provide the protection. And maybe we can argue, it's contentious, as I say, that Saudi Arabia provided that kind of a rule. But usually there's some contest, contestation within that, as it were, whether this is chopping and changing with the regional allies or Qatar driving a very hard bargain with the Ottomans or with the Brits. You don't really see that. It's a very quiet period for Qatar. As I say, it strongly looks like this is a reflection of the leadership in Doha. Um, Khalifa bin Hamid seems to be perfectly eager, perfectly happy to secure Qatar. How does he do it? Well, yes, as I say, he wants a relationship with Saudi. Perhaps they can provide some kind of Susan relationship. But how else does he secure his security? It's almost through anonymity, in a way. It's about keeping Qatar's head below the parapet. This is one of the ideas, I think, who was um, kicking around at that time. Certainly, the foreign policy is relatively limited. We have embassies opening, and we have Qatar giving a lot of money to charitable organizations and to states as state-on-state state aid, uh, as and when it can, but not, not a huge amount else, to be perfectly honest. Evolution. So what am I talking about here? So I'm talking about Qatar from the late 1980s onwards. We're getting to some more interesting things here, perhaps, more relevant for today. So... The context at the moment uh, that I'm talking about is in the late 80s, we have Hamid bin Khalifa. At the time, he was the crown prince. 
on Fadr bin Khalifa bin Hamid, if you see what I mean. And by 1986, 1987, 1988, it looks like it is basically the crown prince, Hamid bin Khalifa, who is in charge. It looks like he is basically running Qatar at this stage. His father is still the emir, and his father is still the emir until 1995. But it looks that way. It looks that way in terms of the diplomatic correspondence. Lots of freedom of information requests were sent to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. It took them a very, very long time to get back to it. But they're fantastic resources. I suggest you all use them. And a lot of the, our, our British ambassadors to Doha, when they write their annual reports about what's happening in Qatar in 1986, they say, well, Hamid bin Khalifa, the Crown Prince, he's pretty powerful now. 1987, He's really powerful now. 1988, it looks like the Emir doesn't really have enough control anymore, and so on. So not only do we have that, but I think we have a fundamental shift in Qatari foreign policy. An absolute shift, which we can see in, in the, the following kind of ways. I always draw the dates from 1988, personally. Now, this is a slightly abstract date. I don't think a policy was enunciated on the 1st of January 1988 and things subsequently changed. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I think this is an important date. So what we had previously, again, under the father, under the Emir, Khalifa Mohammed, in the previous era, was a quiet Qatar. Just stayed <coughs> under Saudi Arabia's auspices, just tried to be quiet to secure security, those kinds of ideas. There's a couple of chairs at the front of you. But in 1988, Qatar recognizes diplomatically China and the USSR um, before Saudi Arabia does it. Now, this strikes me as interesting. I think the UAE beat Qatar to it on maybe one of these occasions. <laughs> but this is, I take this as interesting in that this is the first time we see Qatar doing something a little unilaterally a little different to the way Saudi Arabia has been doing these things. And so this is the date I put on it. But more importantly, we have far bigger changes afoot very soon. From 1989, for about five, six, seven years or so, we have Qatar in discussions with Iran. Qatar wants to build a pipeline of water from the Karen Mountains all the way down the Gulf to Doha. Um, this is a very unusual policy at the time. This comes in an era of relative rapprochement. Definitely, this is the Rafsanjani kind of a period. But again, I think this is unusual. This is Qatar stepping beyond the traditional bounds. This is why I put it in a separate section, as it were. More than this, again, following a certain international opening with Israel, a certain rapprochement, we have an awful lot of discussion and activity between Qatar and Israel. This leads to, of course, the establishment of an Israeli trade office in Doha from 1996. It goes on till 2008 with a short break or two. But this is a lasting kind of achievement, I suppose, of Qatari foreign policy. And incidentally, Qatar is also at this, tri also at this time attempting to ship its LNG to Israel by Enron, of all companies. It's really trying to integrate Israel and almost Iran into its own economy, which is quite interesting, I think. And again, quite clearly, is, is my contention, a policy of this new era. 
What else do we have? Of course, the 1990s brings a whole range of changes in the Gulf. The Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 profoundly changes the region. Of course, today we look at the Gulf and we see American forces sprinkled around it with extremely important large bases. And we mustn't think that that is some kind of perpetual norm. That stems from the, this, the invasion. It was only subsequent to that 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 kind of possibility really opened up. Yes, America had lots of sort of advisors in Saudi, and yes, there was a base in Oman from, for years before that, but that base was nothing compared to the bases that arrived subsequent to this date. So not only do, does Qatar um, in 92 sign these defensive kind of arrangements. We need to be careful what we say there because I don't think there are any kind of security guarantees. I think that would be a, the wrong way to phrase it. But it's quite clearly an arrangement that is made with the Crown Prince um, um, Hamid bin Khalifa and interlocutors in the States to allow for the significant US basing within Qatar. And at the same time, Britain and France also signed to some level of, it's a bit <coughs> mysterious, some level of security, defence, cooperation agreements with Qatar at this time as well. So uh, in this era where Qatar is expanding its relationships left, right and centre, it does it with non-state actors as well. The relationship with Hamas becomes increasingly clear today, you know, in, in, recent, in recent years and decades. The links with Khaled Mashal are well known. Um, one of the last things the now father of me did was, of course, go to um, Gaza. And the relations with Hezbollah. Now, this is more murky, more difficult to pin down, without a doubt. But what we have are things like Qatar supporting what we might broadly conceive of as Hezbollah's kind of aspirations. So, for example, in the mediation in 2008 in Lebanon, one interpretation of that is that Qatar was attempting to, I wouldn't say exactly help Hezbollah, but the ultimate result of that mediation was making Hezbollah's de, you know, de facto power a bit more de jure, as it were. That was kind of the result. And so maybe we can see a certain relationship there. There's discussions about funding for Hezbollah, but there's nothing particularly concrete there that I've come across at least. Just rumours. So anyway, this strikes me as really quite new. A new era, a new set of relationships, if you will. This is about, the way I see it, it's the overt diversification of international alliances. And, you know, to a degree we have the same model is going on. We still want a central suzerain power. We still want a central ally on whom we can rely, whether this was the Ottomans or the Brits or maybe Saudi, America now. I think we can make a reasonable line there, as it were. But more than that, we have this idea of a diversification of dependency. I think the way I think of this in my mind is that, you know, in the 1990 or whenever, if the Crown Prince de facto leader, maybe we could say of Qatar, if he was examining Qatari history, he would say, well, the, the Ottoman Empire had a base here. Um, they, were, they protected us. They had boots on the ground for 50 years. Then this 
relatively significant, very significant regional empire, it disintegrated. Then we had the Brits. We had agreements with the Brits from 1916 to 1971. Largest empire the world had ever, etc., etc. They were here, then it dissolved as well. The, this, the relationship between the Crown Prince, Hamid bin Khalifa, and Saudi Arabia is pretty complex. Happy to go into it at a later date. But I think in this line of thinking, maybe we could discern an idea that, that yes, it is a good thing that from 1992, Qatar has signed some kind of, uh, entered some kind of relationship with America. This is a good thing. But these things don't last. My history, the history of the state has proven that these things don't last. It strikes me that he was going for something of a diversification of that key dependency. We have more foreign policy. I'll come on to foreign policy specifically in a minute. And then we come to this idea of Qatar embracing something of a neutral persona. Now, I like this idea, but it's pretty hard to articulate. You know, I've written and I've read several articles on Qatar as a Switzerland of the Gulf and the Sweden of the Gulf. Mm. You know, and I write it and I have a curious smile on my face. I'm not sure how well it fits. But I like the idea somehow, somewhere, that Hamid bin Khalifa had this idea that, right, we are attempting to remove Qatar, metaphorically, from the region. We have our relations with Saudi, which eventually got solved, but so we don't tilt one way, we'll have decent relations, pretty good relations with Iran. In the, you know, the heart of the Arab world, as it were, we will have relations with all the different states, including the actors like Israel, and, of course, Hezbollah, and Hamas. I think there's something there... Maybe not. We'll see. It didn't last a huge amount of time either which way. Foreign policies, we actually have a great range of policies emerging from Qatar during this time. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time going into these. I'm happy to come back at any stage to dig into these a bit more. We have the birth of the LNG industry. The, the punchline here, which one is this? This is that Qatar entered the LNG industry began selling LNG in 1997. And then by, what is it, 2008, 2007, it was in a decade, it was the most, it was shipping the most LNG in the world. And then onwards and massively upwards. This changed Qatar quite significantly, as you can probably imagine. Where did all the LNG go? Where does all the LNG go? Mostly to East Asia, is the punchline. It goes all around the world including South America these days, and so on and so on, but uh, most of it went to East Asia. So LNG is a straightforward policy. It's not even necessarily a foreign policy. It's as a sense, if you have this enormous gas field, of course it makes sense to market it. But there are other corollaries we need to think of as well. So in recent years, Qatar has become a pretty important supplier of energy to these, to these countries. Not necessarily Argentina and Chile, but definitely to China, uh, Korea, Spain, the UK, for example. Pretty important. We shouldn't forget that um, uh, for a long time, Qatar wanted to ship its LNG to America. It built a huge terminal in Louisiana or Texas somewhere, in uh, Golden Pass. It wanted to be a, uh, an important um, supplier for the states as well. And these interesting corollaries happen. You know, this isn't necessarily the explicit goal of the Qatari policy, but it's an interesting corollary to note that on this list of 
people or states that Qatar ship a lot of gas to, quite a few members of the UN Security Council, permanent members. And there are quite a few non-permanent members, South Korea, Spain, Japan, in recent years. This strikes me as interesting. This causation and correlation here, we need to split up, of course, but this strikes me as interesting. Education. Again, we know education is, is a domestic policy, but it's a bit more than that in Qatar. Because this is Georgetown University, this is uh, Whale Cornell, and more importantly, perhaps, this is RAND. RAND, the US consultancy that went into Doha and completely revolutionized, at the behest, of course, of the Emir, Qatar's policy. It didn't just do a few tweaks, it did a profound change of the policy along American lines. And this is what we have. We have effectively, going back to those universities, American educational institutions grafted onto Qatari society, grafted onto, into Qatar's educational system. That strikes me as interesting. That suggests a certain orientation to me. Come back to any of these points if I can. We all know these sorts of issues. Al Jazeera, we can talk a lot about Al Jazeera. Um, it was a very important tool, of course. That's the Museum of Islamic Art. You know, we all know what these things represent, the film festivals and so on. Very sort of important charities, I think, based out of Qatar Foundation. Obviously enough, do I need to mention? Um, and also else, elsewhere in the sporting realm. So we have this kind of a soft power angle that I'll come back to in just a minute. Of course, who could forget QIA, we all know the Qatar Investment Authority. Uh, again, I'll come back to why I think this is important in just a second, but these are sort of the new strands, is my point here. These are the new elements of the foreign policy. And we have various iterations of mediation. These are just the three major ones, I suppose. More recently, we have a lot of smaller mediations still going on, picking out individuals and groups um, that happen to be captured by some disparate group or other in Iraq somewhere. So, inevitably, in any conversation about Qatar, we need to talk about soft power and building influence and building a brand for the state and these sorts of things. It's quite, quite tedious, I find, this, this conversation. Very amorphous, but it's pretty important. It's difficult to nail down. It strikes me as a lot of these things are very basically just strengthening the Qatari state. We don't need a huge amount of, to invest a lot of thought and effort necessarily into looking at the um, Qatar Investment Authority. But having said that, I presented similar sort of studies looking at the QIA at boards of banks in London, and they want to know what Qatar is up to. And they need to be reminded that mostly it's about money. It's about investment. It's an investment authority. It's about return on the investment. A lot of it gets, a lot of the discussion gets caught up in the, in the accoutrement of this, but it's fairly straightforward, some of it. Diversifying Qatar's dependency, perhaps that's a reasonable lens through which to look at Qatar's LNG. So Qatar made itself crucial to the economic prosperity, continued economic prosperity of the UK, probably China, definitely Japan, definitely the South, South Korea. It's made itself very important. If we want to keep the lights on in London, as a Lord famously put it, you know, we need to keep Qatar on side. You put it in a more colourful way than that, but I'll leave it there. 
This idea of building elite relations is pretty important. Um, this is one of my favorite quotes from WikiLeaks, which are a godsend for a researcher, um, looking at Qatar at least. This is from now former, former Foreign Minister Hamad bin Jassim Al Thani. Qatar in, wasn't just with reach out to Asia and so on, that it involved itself in sort of charitable works. It gave $50 million, maybe $100 million after Hurricane Katrina a few years back. And an American dignitary said to Hamad bin Jassim, thank you very much for your donation after Hurricane Katrina. And Hamad bin Jassim's response was, it's no problem. We might have our own Katrina one day. This idea of there's a certain reciprocity built into certain Kashmir relationships is an interesting one, I think. Maybe this idea of building elite relationships can be seen quite nicely in World Cup issues surrounding the links between Qatar winning the World Cup, links to Sarkozy, links to Platini, and so on. Maybe we can see them there as well. And then we come to this general idea. Of it's about building a, po a positive, attractive brand for the state. If you go to the branding literature, the country branding literature, it's quite voluminous these days. A lot of the work, the empirical work, talks about the importance of creating a brand for a country, particularly in a region like the Gulf, where you have Qatar and Dubai and Abu Dhabi, maybe Manama and so on, very close by. You need to differentiate Doha from these other elements of competition. And these aspects, I think, the, the sport and so on and so on, are probably important towards that end. Revolution. So, previously, what we had was Qatar attempting to be sort of neutral, if we will, if you'll allow me that, to doing its best not to choose sides. So, friends with Iran and Saudi, with Israel and Hamas and so on. This modus operandi was completely changed, of course, in the Arab Spring, where Qatar developed a reputation, a perception, that it was persistently supporting Islamist groups of one variety or another, usually aligned with or through the Muslim Brotherhood. And it garnered this reputation for good reason on occasion, quite a lot. We can go into any of these examples in a bit more detail, if, if, if you want, of course, but some of the central conduits through which Qatar transferred its support, Libya is the easiest example, of course. Some of the central conduits about how Qatar did its diplomacy, how and who Qatar supported, are through these Islamist links, generally moderate Islamist links. And Qatar supported these sort of revolutionaries, as it were, against status quo powers. But at the same time, we need to have a slightly deeper think about this idea of who Qatar supported. Now, of course, in the literature about Islamism, about the groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, there are two sides, basically, two arguments. One group says, well, groups, moderate Muslim groups like uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, they are a firewall against further radicalization. They stop further radicalization. They allow Islam to play a role in a moderate way and they stop further radicalization. The other opposite side says, no, um, these groups are a conveyor belt. They, are, they start the process whereby, yes, maybe the Ikhwan, the Brotherhood is a bit moderate, but by allowing that, those certain groups to be, as it were, that inevitably leads to the greater radicalization of these groups. 
This is the basic kind of dictomy in the literature, looking at a, an approach to Islamists, if you were, to the role of political Islam. And Qatar is very much, I should probably add, Qatar is very much a firewall proponent, to be clear. Qatar believes in supporting, quite strongly I think, in supporting groups like the Muslim Brotherhood because they're indelible, because they're there, because most of them are moderate, I think, from the Qatar perspective, and they need to be supported to stop further radicalization. And that's the basic Qatari perspective. And under that rubric, the Muslim Brotherhood, trying to actively channel support through the Muslim Brotherhood, from the Catholic perspective, I think it's therefore a logical choice. And I say this for a few reasons. Logistically, I don't really know of any other organizations in the Middle East like the Muslim Brotherhood. Card-carrying organization, decades upon decades upon decades of history across countries. The theory, I think, was that if we can support Brotherhood-associated people in one country, that will allow us to maybe support the movement as a whole elsewhere in the region. It's a, potentially a simplistic answer to a very, when you're presented with a very difficult situation. Maybe it looks, at least initially, like a relatively simple answer. There's an organization there that we quite like, that now they have the ability to, to be in power, however the phrase is, we'll support them there. Supporting the brother is something of a logical choice in terms of happenstance, almost. Now, the history of the Muslim Brotherhood in Qatar is very interesting. Um, Courtney can talk about it probably more expertly than me, but it's very interesting. I mean, brothers from the 50s and the 60s onwards were crucial, like they were in all Gulf states, obviously, to the establishment of the bureaucracies in the Gulf states. They played a very important role. They were there. Lots of them. They had their own in individual groups, Al-Islah in, in the UAE at least, uh, in Doha, um, up until, well, up until 1989 when they self-dissolved, as it were. But there is a, a history of these contacts in the state. Add to this, we have a certain quirk, almost, of Qatari history, whereby the Qatari Peninsula has long been a haven for exiles, from the 19th century, from before, all the way through, of all stripes and varieties, we have found exiles in Doha, from more recent exiles like Saddam Hussein's family, or some of them, Osama bin Laden's family, to the, the, the FIS from Algeria, Abbasi Madani, through to Ali al Salabi, who became a central conduit uh, for in um, Libya. We have had a lot of these groups, and of course, above all else, maybe, Yusuf al Karadawi. So these happenstance links. I don't think there's a great coherent master plan behind the placement of these links. They just kind of happened to be there and became important later on. And I think there's a certain amount of conviction here. I think the elites quite like supporting these groups. Um, I'm happy to go back into this. Um, I think Hamad bin Khalifa had a sort of an affinity towards the, uh, this idea of a uniting movement of sorts in the Arab Spring. The idea of who else to support comes back to the sort of logistic one, I think. I, do, I think Qatar was looking for an easy answer in the spring. It basically failed, though, is, is the punchline, in all seriousness. I don't really see how we can 
look at Qatar's foreign policy in this era has been much of a success. The revolutions failed. Now, Qatar was only one external actor involving itself in these countries. Of course it was. But the, the ramifications are still the same. Qatar's foreign policies in those, in this sense, failed, I think. Worse still, I think Qatar undermined its own brand. I think Qatar developed a problematic relationship, uh, re reputation, excuse me, in a lot of countries. We had Al Jazeera used to be the shining, I don't know what, uh, it used to be a very popular aspect of the, of the Qatari brand, as it were. But in the Arab Spring, of course, it became increasingly dismissed as obviously some kind of Islamist-supporting channel. The Qatari government was dismissed too quickly, of course, but the, the perception was of Qatar as an Islamist-supporting state. And then we've had things like the German development minister, two UK parliamentarians, a US congressional hearing, and we even had a NATO country that came really close to labelling Qatar full stop as a state sponsor of terrorism. This is kind of the backlash of Qatar, uh, of its policies in the Arab Spring, of the perception of its policies in the Arab Spring. Some perception, some reality. And of course we had three ambassadors withdrawn just the other year from the UAE, Saudi and Bahrain. This signals a failure of some sort, presumably, that, Saudi, that Qatar antagonized its neighbors so much that en masse they withdrew their ambassadors to effectively blackmail Qatar into changing its policies. That doesn't strike me as a success of its policy, as it were. And the last one, post-revolution. So I'm talking about Qatar in the past couple of years now, under Amir Tamim bin Hamid. Now, after the ambassadors were withdrawn, Qatar, I think, dealt with it very well. Qatar didn't do very much. It kind of waited it out. It made a couple of moves, it seems. A couple of Muslim Brotherhood leaders were shipped off to Turkey, maybe to Malaysia, something like this. A couple of the correct noises were made. Um, Qatar signed some in, indefinable agreement uh, testifying that it was now on board with the GCC line. But I don't know if this is really the case. Did it really sever its links? I'm not so sure. So we have little things like the four, now former ambassador, um, Khaled al-Atir, he offered with, to mediate between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Egyptian government. Probably with a slight smirk on his face when he said it, but he did. I think he was trying to rehabilitate that link to a degree. Otherwise, we still, Qatar, it seems, still has quite clear relationships with the likes of Jabhat al-Nusra on the fairly extreme, well, not fairly, on the extreme end of the groups operating in places like Syria. Why do I say this? Because Qatar still, it seems, has the ability to procure hostages captured by these sorts of groups from those locations. That's not the Qatari foreign ministry going in there necessarily, I don't think at all. I think that's Qatar's relationships with Jabhat al-Nusra getting these and many other people out of these situations beside. And... And of course the leader, Al Jalani, of Al Jabhat al-Nusra has been on Al Jazeera several times. I mean, I don't think Al Jazeera is some Qatari mouthpiece or something like that. It's a lot more complex than that. But I don't think that the leader of Jabhat al-Nusra could have several long interviews on Al Jazeera without 
some kind of official nod somewhere. I think Qatar, as I've written before, was trying to bring Jabhat al-Nusra in from the cold. Happy to try to go back into this later if we can. Looking at the idea of Tamim and his foreign policy, I'm not really sure that Sheikh Tamim likes foreign policy all that much. I'm not really sure he cares that much about foreign policy. When he was crown prince, I think there's pretty little evidence of him actively saying, right, I want that foreign, foreign policy portfolio. I want to do that. There are examples of him doing some foreign policy. 2008, he was important with the Saudi file, re reassembling relations there. But I don't think he particularly has a, an urge to be anything like his father, such an activist in this sphere at least. Open to correction. I think Kata, um, Tamim rather, is a clever Qatari politician. I think he knows his people very well. I don't think probably the majority of Qataris want this very activist, confrontational, complicated foreign policy to continue. I think the average Qatari would paraphrase Voltaire to say something like, I will defend to the death my country's right to have relations with the Ikhwan. I don't necessarily want them myself. But you can't tell them we can't have them. I think that's the dynamic. I think Tamim is reading this pretty well, that most people just want a bit of an easier life in Doha, I suspect. And of course, as soon as Tamim took power, um, there was a, obviously an internal focus, a very strong internal focus, very preoccupied with fiscal issues in Doha. That have the, those problems have only got more acute as time has gone on. So he was distracted. I think there's a certain amount of kind of autopilot, basically, in Qatar's foreign policy. I think he just carried on, slowly doing vaguely the similar, similar kind of things, a certain idea of path dependency. There's no new contacts, don't just appear from anywhere for him to diversify his relationships. And his father, Hamad bin Khalifa, he's not in power and he's not dictating Qatari foreign policy. I don't think anything like that. But still, <coughs> it strikes me as practically impossible for Tamim to have changed things around while his father's still around. That just doesn't strike me as likely in the slightest. More to the point, if his father thought his son was about to unpick 20 or 30 years of his life's work, why did he give him power in the first place when he didn't have to? Anyway. But, but, do we have a foreign policy? So, recently, there's been a Qatari-Turkish announcement as to the establishment of a large Turkish military base in Doha. Up to three or 4,000 troops, which, you know, I would be surprised, but those are the numbers. The idea that Qatar troops could be stationed in Turkey, intelligence sharing, this is, this is interesting to me. This strikes me as a decision. This strikes me as probably something like the first actual significant choice of the Tamim era. Previously, I think it was pretty, on auto, pretty much on autopilot. Whereas this is a choice. So I'm very interested in this decision. And I think it's probably indicative of his kind of approach. I think it shows, convincingly, maybe not, but I think it demonstrates, it intimates, it strongly intimates that Tamim wants to reinforce the link with Turkey, of course, with the Muslim Brotherhood. That's what Turkey and Qatar have in common these days. That's their central, central issue. So I find it hard to with take out the
the, the brotherhood issue from this decision. And from the Turkish side, I think it's a bit of neo-Ottomanism and it's a fiscally driven decision to try to cash in on the Qatari military market, which I think they're slightly late for. A couple of last thoughts then. So this first period, I think, was mostly about local alliances. Was it successful? Well, it was on and off. There were lots of changes. Subsequently, I think that in the evolution, this is Hamid bin Khalifa, this is the late 80s, we switch local alliances, even local alliances like the... the um, uh, sorry, so before we also have the likes of the, the British Empire. But now we have the Americans. And more to the point, we have much more diversified sources than just America. This is where I bring in the LNG kind of an issue. Was Hamid bin Khalifa aiming for some sort of neutrality issue? Uh, as I say, I find it difficult to articulate, but I think there's something there in a way. This idea of diversification of dependency. Was it successful? I would say it's too successful. I think that fundamentally, that Qatar from 1992 up until the Arab Spring had this enormous American military base based there. I think it gave the Qatari leadership far too comfortable an existence. They didn't think enough easy to say with hindsight, they didn't critique enough the depth of the ramifications of their decision in the Arab Spring to intervene. And I think that stems from their absolute security under what they felt was the American security umbrella. So they sent, without a second thought, the vast majority of their operational fast jet capability to Libya for Operation Unified Protector. I don't know what they left flying over Doha, but I doubt it was working. But that doesn't matter when you have the Americans there. I think this coloured their kind of thought process in a way. Then revolution, I think this is this idea of we want international alliances, but we want regional alliances. I think this was an attempt of sorts to become primus inter pares for this new actor, the Muslim Brotherhood, if it transpired. That's what I see that in, in that way. Again, trying to diversify dependency, but this is ultimately counterproductive. And the last thing, well, what are we seeing now? Of course, we've still got our LNG and so on. We still have our American relationship. A regional alliance. Well, this is a question, this is something we should talk about, whether this regional alliance that I'm talking about, whether this should refer to its relationship with Turkey or it should refer to its relationship with the GCC, which has now been reformed. I'm a deep skeptic about the GCC in all manner of ways. But that can refer to either, I suppose. And then we'll see. And anyway, I've overran far too much. So thank you so much. Thank you.